Okay, this is the podcast for week 13. Um, before we get into talking about this week's reading, the chapters from David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs, I want to say a little bit about the uh, assignment that is due at the end of this week, the Work in Popular Culture assignment. And in some sense, this assignment is also short, is also very open to lots of different uh, television shows or movies you could write about, um, much like the Workers' Inquiry. And in some sense, it's the it's modeled on the Workers' Inquiry in the exact inverse. You can take up some of the same questions um, in terms of uh, examining the division of labor, questions about alienation, questions about management, surveillance, questions about forms of resistance, and so on. All the things that you uh, asked or uh, examined in your actual job, you can now examine in terms of representations of work in films or TV. Um, what you pick is fairly up, up to you. I gave you a, a list of some possible suggestions. If for whatever reason you're bereft of any suggestion and maybe have difficulty streaming something, um, you could write about Sorry to Bother You, but I want to encourage you to think about uh, things beyond that. Um, that's there if you if you don't have a way to view a film um, or television. Um, I also said that a couple of types of shows um, I think are not entirely off limits, but I think are partially off limits. And those are cop shows, doctor shows, and lawyer shows. And the reason I'm putting these kind of off limits is that I, I don't, these are established genre of television and our movies, and they tend to um, take place in their own sort of uh, fantasy world version of what it means to be a cop, a doctor, or a lawyer, and don't seem to have any much of a real connection to the world of work. There are exceptions, um, which is why uh, uh, you could possibly do some of these. Say, for example, The Wire um, would be an exception. I don't know if there's an exception at the level of, of doctor shows um, or even lawyer shows, but... Um, those are ones that I encourage you to stay away from just because they are more like genres of television or movies and less like uh, representations of work. In the same similar way, I don't think it really makes sense to write about uh, a superhero uh, as work um, uh, just because what I'm looking for is some connection to some kind of reality, even though... Uh, uh, one of the things I'm hoping that will come out in terms of doing this after doing workers' inquiry is that uh, maybe we can think and talk about some of the way in which um, the reality of the world of work on television is far from the reality of actual work. Okay, so um, on to, to bullshit jobs. So um, a little bit about David Graeber, um, the author of this piece or book. So David Graeber was born in 1961, um, and he died tragically um, last year in September of 2020, um, uh, which is quite shocking and surprising. 
Um, there are a few elements of his life that, that are uh, worth talking about. He was an anthropologist. He was a professor at Yale starting in 2005. Um, and in around 2008, he uh, was denied a renewal of his contract at Yale, which many people interpreted this as sort of punishment for his political activity. He was involved in helping the the uh, um, janitors union at Yale and took the side of students who were involved in those struggles and that um, uh, got him in trouble. Um, he did eventually find a job at the University of London in 2008. In 2011, when the Occupy Wall Street movement happened in New York City, he happened to be in New York City then, He's sometimes credited as being the quote unquote, like a leader of it, but David Graeber is an anarchist and he doesn't really believe in leaders, but uh, some would argue that some of the things he was involved with, like coining the phrase the 99% and some of the other use of anarchist organizing strategies come from David Graeber's influence. Um, and then in 2013, as he says, he contributed a very short essay um, uh, on bullshit jobs to a magazine called Strike. And this essay went online. In this essay went viral. It caused the website for this magazine to crash. It was picked up. It was responded to in papers like the Financial Times um, and other places. It went everywhere. And and in some sense, because of that, he decided to follow it up and write an entire book about the topic, um, which came out in 2018. So uh, first, we'll talk a little bit about what he defines a bullshit job, uh, uh, and then um, talk a little bit about what the different types of bullshit jobs there are. Because um, as he says, you know, one of the things that happened when the short piece went kind of viral is he began to hear a lot about people who had stories about their bullshit jobs and in some sense set up an email address to hear these stories um, and collected a lot of uh, uh, anecdotal data, at least, about the world of bullshit jobs. Um, so he, he builds up his definition bit by bit in the first chapter. And one of the things that he really stresses in this definition is that a bullshit job has to be experienced as such by the person who does it. Um, because as he points out, if you don't take in the subjective point of view of the person who has the job, then any definition of bullshit jobs is going to just fall to whatever a particular person doesn't think is very important, right? He cites um, Douglas Adams, the author of the famous and influential Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, who uh, in one of his novels um, has hairdressers as kind of a, a, a pointless job. And you know, all, when you say something like that, that's a pointless job. All you really are saying is that you don't see the need for it. And I'm sure anyone could think of 
uh, jobs that they don't see the need for. If you're not into bowling, then running a bowling alley is not is a bullshit job. If you're not into fashion, then being a fashion designer is a bullshit job. But that definition um, really would fall apart because it would just be everyone pointing out the job that they do not think is worth doing. So a bullshit job uh, has a an irreducible subjective dimension to it. It has to be experienced as such by the person doing it. So uh, he builds a definition. He finally spells it out uh, towards the end of the chapter where he says uh, in his final working definition, a bullshit job is a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even... The employee cannot justify its existence, even though as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. And as he says after that, the attentive reader may have noticed one remaining ambiguity. This definition is mainly subjective. Um, I define a bullshit job as one the worker considers to be pointless, unnecessary, pernicious, but I also suggest that the worker is correct. Um, so one of the questions, and I'll, I'll state this again at the end, that I want you to think about and thinking about this definition is to what extent is the definition of bullshit job an expansion of and a different dimension of what Marx called alienation. So the first question to ask is, is a bullshit job alienation or alienating, and how is it different from the four different types of alienation that Marx enumerated. So uh, that's question number one. I'll, I'll state that again at, at the end of this. So um, a couple of, of distinctions come with this idea of bullshit job. As he says, uh, a bullshit job should not be confused with a shit job. A shit job would be one that is particularly physically taxing, demanding, and so on. Um, and as uh, uh, Graeber points out, this is a point that he'll come back to again, one of the big ways in which bullshit jobs are different than shit jobs is that shit jobs tend to be low paying and bullshit jobs tend to be, or sometimes are even fairly cushy and fairly well paid. And this uh, picks up a theme which he'll return to in chapter six, the last chapter we read about this kind of inverse relationship between the importance of a job and the pay uh, underlying a job. The second kind of distinction that he adds or qualifying point that he adds to this is that um, a bullshit job shouldn't be confused with the kind of bullshitization of various forms of employment. Um, and as he points out, even people who may think their job is worthwhile and important. He gives the example of teachers. Teachers have a kind of irreducible bullshitization of their job as more and more of their job is taken up with responding, you know, doing paperwork, attending sort of meetings that fill up time, um, responding to various standards and, 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 and qualifications. Um, there's a kind of tendency towards uh, uh, bullshit built into a lot of jobs, even if they're not bullshit jobs. And one of the big questions, and 
Uh, we'll get to this in a couple minutes, but one of the really big questions hovering over this book is, um, is how counterintuitive it, it is, because according to very different economic models, whether you subscribe to a classical uh, economic model of a sort of Adam Smith version or a Marxist economic model on both those very opposed ways of thinking about the economy, bullshit jobs should not exist. On the first, the sort of classical model, bullshit jobs shouldn't exist because the market encourages uh, 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 competition and innovation and a bullshit job would seem to create unnecessary costs for a firm that a market should weed out. Because he says repeatedly, um, in, in his discussion of bullshit jobs, we tend to think of bullshit jobs associated with the public sector because we tend to think of the public sector as bloated, as not as efficient as the private sector. And as he even goes on to say, there's kind of a, a Soviet-like idea attached to bullshit jobs. Um, you know, they, they seem reminiscent of sort of uh, old... Soviet style demands of full employment where you create a job just to create a job. And as he points out, it takes three people to sell you a cut of meat. Um, uh, and it seems very counterintuitive that capitalism, especially a capitalism that we've been talking about, defined increasingly by automation and the um, creating of surplus populations through automation of unemployment would be defined by bullshit jobs. But we'll get back to that point uh, in, in a minute. First, I want to talk briefly about the five different types of bullshit jobs that uh, Graeber breaks down. Um, and, in, and in doing so, I think we can begin to see, I mean, He's kind of breaking down his concept and making distinctions, but he's also, in doing so, saying a little bit about why these bullshit jobs exist, even though everything that we're taught or led to believe about, about economics and about capitalist economies suggests that they shouldn't exist. So the first type of bullshit job is a flunky. Um, and, and here there's a very, I mean, Graeber studied, um, does anthropological work in Madagascar and was very interested in feudal societies and kings and chieftains and so on. And there's a sense in which, the, as he says, the flunky has a bit of a remnant of a pre-capitalist feudal society to it, where one of the ways you showed you had prestige and power is you had a bunch of people, you know, servants, um, maids, even your own, you know, entertainment gesture and so on. And to some extent, the flunky follows that similar kind of line, um, as, as Graeber points out that, um, you know, part of the reason why he talks about one version of a flunky, a receptionist, even for a business or an office that doesn't receive many calls or many visitors. Um, and there's a certain uh, kind of logic of prestige there, as he points out that, you know, part of the reason people have a receptionist is because, well, all the other guys or all the other people doing that same business have a receptionist, and also partly because of sort of cultural norms and ideas. Um, if you were, say, for example, calling a lawyer or a doctor, um, you might be put off if you dialed the phone number and got the lawyer directly. 
Um, it would make you seem like maybe this person wasn't that important and that worthwhile. You expect a receptionist. Um, to throw in a little pop culture reference, uh, I don't know if anyone's watched the show, Better Call Saul, which deals with a struggling uh, lawyer trying to become, make a make a practice for himself. And one of the things he does, especially in the early season, is he does a fake voice whenever he answers his cell phone and pretends to be his own receptionist because to some extent he understands that the receptionist is part of the prestige of a job. So there's, we already begin to see why flunkies exist. Flunkies exist, even though they don't do a lot, right? He, he mentions the one person who besides answering phones, filled a bowl of mints and did a few other things. And then mainly just tried not to be bored um, the person can't not, not have one. And a similar logic defines goons. Goons are like, uh, well, at the national level, they're armies. And as Graeber points out about armies, half the reason for having an army is you have an army because all the other countries do. And the same kind of logic applies to having, say, for example, uh, lawyers on retainer, um, corporate lawyers, you you know, you have a corporate lawyer because the other company has a corporate lawyer, and uh, if you don't, they will use their corporate lawyer to you know do things you don't like. So there's a certain kind of um, uh, logic of escalation where like you have to have a goon because the other guy has a goon. Um, then the next version of a bullshit job: duct tapers. Um, who exist to sort of fix um, and resolve problems that should have been addressed at a more fundamental level. Like he mentions, for example, um, when there, there are incompatibilities between different types of software, someone's job is to kind of transfer one thing to another, to take things from an email and put them into an Excel spreadsheet is a duct taper's job. It shouldn't really exist. And if there was some kind of efficiency in the system, it, wouldn't and he you know the book begins with a story of the guy whose job it is to to deal with it movement uh, and logistics um and then uh, the next form of a bullshit job is a box ticker and a box ticker uh exists to make sure that at least the that the company has done the appearance of uh, dealing with, say, a safety issue or a human uh, resources issue. I mean, uh, uh, box tickers, um, uh, some of these have been automated. Um, like, for example, many people as employees have to do mandatory different types of sensitivity training or other forms of training that are come now in the form of programs. But there's usually someone instituting this. And as Graeber points out, the point of these box tickers and why he calls them box tickers is not really to address the issue, not really to resolve issues of, say, discrimination in the workplace. Their real goal is to uh, uh, tick off a box so the company can say, look, we did the training so that if anything should happen, with uh, discrimination in the workplace, the company can say, look, we did the training. We ticked off that box. Um, if there's still issues, it must be because of the, the employee. It's not us. So it's, it's checking off a box rather than addressing the issue. So 
Whereas duct tapers address real issues that should have been resolved at a more fundamental level. Box tickers uh, 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 make an appearance of addressing an issue. And then the last uh, type of taskmaster is a, uh, last, time, last time I bullshit, I was a taskmaster, someone who creates work uh, for others um, and finds ways to tell people to do things often that they already know how to do. You know, he gives the example of the uh, tea company in Marseille, France, um, which to some extent they had, they brought in Bob Ike new company and they brought in all kinds of human relate, uh, human resources people. They couldn't figure out anything to get people to do more efficiently. Um, but that becomes one of the uh, tasks and here we can begin to see something of Graeber's explanation as to why bullshit jobs exist. Because um, we can see two different causes, well, uh, three different causes, really, that have brought them into existence. The first, as we saw with flunkies, is the fact that there is um, underlying an economy based on efficiency. There's also a kind of economy of prestige. Um, and in order to have prestige, you need to have um, receptionists, doormen, etc., places that help you look important. Because if you don't look important, then you won't be perceived as important and you'll lose money. Um, but then when it comes to box tickers, especially, um, we can see the way in which one of the things that has uh, led to the increase of bullshit jobs is the increasing bureaucratization of companies and workplaces, the various types of rules they're subject to, and that creates a whole kind of uh, need to create people to monitor those rules and to, to supposedly show that they have been enforced. Um, but the other thing that I think is important, and this becomes more and more central to Graeber's explanation as to why bullshit jobs continue to exist. And this is something we've, we've sort of been talking about repeatedly in, in the past couple of weeks with emotional labor and so on and so forth. And that is the problem of productivity in a predominantly service-based economy. When you are making a thing, it is very easy to measure how productive you are. You just count the number of things made in an hour. When your job is to deal with people, to educate people, uh, and so forth, there is no immediate um, quantifiability, right? Because one of the paradoxes of service work is that sometimes working very fast can be the right way to do things, but sometimes spending time with a specific customer can be more beneficial. The same goes for students and everything else. You can't quantify it because there's a tension between the qualitative and quantifiable aspects of service work. So that creates a whole bunch of jobs of people whose job it is to monitor the people who are doing the job. So you get this scenario. I don't know if... Um, any of you are familiar with there's a there's a Dr. Seuss story about a bee watcher, and the story basically goes that there's a town, and it has a bee, and they count on the bee to to uh, uh, you know to pollinate the flowers, and 
they're not sure if the bees really doing a good job so they hire a bee watcher and things don't really change so they hire a bee watcher watcher and by the end of the story there's an illustration of this lone little bee on a flower and a person watching the bee and a person watching that person and a person watching that person and so on that there is um the sense of every time you begin to impose uh ideas and standards of productivity and efficiency you create a person who has to evaluate those standards and so on and so forth so um there's a certain sense in which and and um i'll talk more about this in the second half i mean as Greg makes it clear, you know, part of the reason why he sees bullshit jobs or other people argue they shouldn't exist is that Graeber is, to some extent, coming at this from both an anthropological perspective, which sees maybe continuity between, say, uh, kings and chieftains and modern CEOs that both like to uh, have people around to make them look prestigious and important. So there's an anthropological dimension to Graeber's analysis, but there's also the, an anarchist dimension in the sense that um, Graeber really sees that part of what bullshit jobs are about is not so much economic efficiency, but power. Um, that um, bullshit jobs exist in part because um, because people like to and are able to get people to do things for them and the the relationship of power is more important than the uh, economic efficiency so um so the first question again how is the bullshit job a definition or an expansion of alienation as marx understood it in terms of its four components and why is that subjective dimension important to the definition of a bullshit job Okay. So as I said, you know, one of the real challenges that Graeber's argument is up against is the challenge that um, by most accounts um, of the economy, depending on, you know, who you ask from a broad range of economic theories and political perspectives, bullshit jobs shouldn't exist. They shouldn't exist because either you look at capitalism as uh, governed by competition, which creates efficiencies, so all bullshit jobs should be removed in the name of efficiency, or if you take even the Marxist perspective and understand that capitalism is founded upon the exploitation of wage labor, um, that any job, even if it seems like bullshit, must necessarily be productive and produce uh, value. Um, although, as we saw um, last week, especially with Jason Smith's book, there is something to be said about a kind of revival of a distinction between productive and unproductive labor in the sense of um, jobs such as uh, security guards and others who don't really produce value but mainly exist to 
guard and protect the value that is produced by others, although security guards don't quite figure into uh, Graeber's account. Um, and to some extent, I think Graeber's um, explanation as to why bullshit jobs continue to exist, um, as I said in the first half of the podcast, is predicated on two things. One, that um, he doesn't really ascribe to a economic theory of value and thinks that value has to be understood in a broader context, that economic value is only one type of value. There's value in the economic sense and different values, including, as we'll talk about in a minute, the value we attach to work. Um, and so, you know, if even if bullshit jobs don't produce economic value, many of them produce values like prestige and importance. And then the second uh, factor, which uh, Graeber attributes to the rise of bullshit jobs, is the way in which, um, despite what we're sort of led to believe, um, uh, modern companies are not sort of antithetical to bureaucracy. They produce their own bureaucracies in their attempts to measure things like efficiency or compliance to various rules. And, um, and there's a kind of multiplying nature of bureaucracies, right? So as Graeber points out that, you know, we tend to think of the bureaucrat as kind of the, the person down at the DMV um, and we associate it with state and uh, city and federal government inefficiencies. But the modern figure of the bureaucrat is just as likely to be the person who works at a um, Verizon store explaining pe to people the, the terms of the contract they've entered. Um, so there is a proliferation of bureaucracies on the side of private business, not just in the public realm. But I think the more interesting question um, for Graeber is not so much why do bullshit jobs still exist, but why do we not object to them? Um, I mean, to some extent, people do on an individual basis. And to some extent, Graeber's entire book is predicated on the fact that people responded to what he wrote. People wrote back to him. There are a lot of people out there who were kind of maybe waiting for this term bullshit jobs to come into existence, um, which would help them articulate and put into words something they've kept secret. And that is they think their work is worthless. Um, and in order to answer the question, why do we um, attach, uh, why do we not complain about bullshit jobs? I and mean, one, one of the things that, that Graeber uh, discusses in chapter six, and it's an interesting um, uh, provocation, is he points out that there seems to be almost an inverse relationship between the value a job provides in terms of service to society and the value that it's measured in in terms of payment right he, i mean graber loves to say this thing that if you know if tomorrow morning you know things like teachers janitors um uh people who stock shelves people who did do dishes if all these people disappeared we would immediately notice it 
but if uh, hedge fund managers, corporate lobbyists, um, public relations executives, and so on and so forth disappeared tomorrow, it probably wouldn't, you probably wouldn't notice. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about this, that, that what, what Graeber proposes as a thought experiment more or less happened uh, to some extent in the early days of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, part of the, what happened in those early days is we had this new term come up, a relatively new term, essential workers. Right? And essential workers are precisely the kind of people that Graeber is talking about, people who, um, by and large, we're not making a lot of money because, in fact, you know, uh, we did see early on a push to increase the pay of essential workers in Portland. The city of Portland is still struggling with uh, uh, laws that will uh, increase the emergency pay for for essential workers. So we did see this push to um, pay these essential workers more, which already suggests they're kind of underpaid. But, you know, part of that was a recognition that, you know, in order for us to survive, we needed people to still stock the shelves at stores and do other sorts of things or else we'd run out of food. Um, and essential workers um, are not, in some sense, the jobs that we think of as being the most well-paying jobs. So there's a tension there. And one of the things that Graeber uses to explain that tension is how we think about and how we value work. Um, and one of the things that Graeber points out that is quite interesting is that people who get to do things that are important and worthwhile, we often, or people often, not always, people often argue that they shouldn't be paid very well because they're rewarded in these other sort of ways. Um, I mean, you see this repeatedly around public school teachers and their demands um, uh, for better pay. There's almost this prevailing attitude that since public school teachers get to do worthwhile things, things they're passionate about, teaching children, um, and, uh, and that work is seen as very rewarding, because you, you, know, you deal with the children, the children, you watch them grow, and so on and so forth. Um, it, there's almost this argument that it shouldn't be paid well. Um, and you see this in terms of anything else, too. There's almost a suspicion uh, to anyone who gets to both do something worthwhile and make money off of it. Um, and to some extent, uh, Graeber's conclusion about this um, is that um, we have a very strange relationship to work. Um, as he says, uh, at the end of chapter six, workers, in other words, gain feelings of dignity and self-worth because they hate their jobs. Um, or as he says, elsewhere in the same uh, chapter, most people's sense of dignity and self-worth is caught up in working for a living. That, you know, it is the sort of ground zero of claiming to be worthwhile. Um, this is something that Kathy Weeks talked about too, this sense of like, I work for a living, I pay my own bills, thus in some sense, I must be worthwhile. 
um, and and we tend to look down upon people who we perceive as not working and see them as parasites and useless and so on and so forth. Um, and that's, you know, the, one of the worst things you can say about a group of people, politically speaking, is to suggest that they do not work and do not contribute. So we get a sense of dignity um, uh, from work. But then that's combined with, as Graver points out, that most people don't like their jobs. Um, and so this kind of goes against, you know, this goes against part of what he was saying in terms of bullshit jobs. Um, as he says, um, bullshit jobs proliferate today in large part because of the peculiar nature of managerial feudalism that has come to dominate wealthy economies but to increase in degree all economies. They cause misery because human happiness is always caught up in a sense of having effects in the world, a feeling which most people, when they speak of their work, express through a language of social value. Yet at their same time, they are aware that the greater the social value, the less one is likely to be paid to do it. Like Annie, they are faced with a choice between doing useful and important work, like taking care of children, or being effectively told that the gratification of helping others should be its own reward, and it's up to them to figure out how to pay their bills or accepting pointless and degrading work that destroys their mind and body for no particular reason other than a widespread feeling that if one does not engage in labor, it destroys the mind and body. Whether or not there's a reason to be doing it, one does not deserve to live. That I mean, this is a pretty strong word. It's in some sense becomes a kind of masochism. Masochism in the sense of enjoying um, pain and suffering that to some extent we take pride in the fact that uh, we are exhausted by our work, um, uh, degraded by our work. That's what it means to be hardworking is to, in some sense, put a positive spin on alienation. And if we, if that's how we value ourselves, if that's how we see ourselves as worthwhile, then to some extent, um, you know, we're never really going to call bullshit on bullshit jobs. We're never really going to be able to raise the questions which Graeber wants us to raise that we are creating work that has no social benefit, that doesn't really have a point. Um, you know, telemarketer jobs exist, right? As we talked about with Jamie Woodcock, but one of the really difficult thing to even uh, uh, organize and address issues in a telemarket office is that most people working there feel a sense of um, pointlessness to that job. Um, and, you know, here we can kind of understand maybe why Graeber's little article was such a hit and maybe why most of the responses to it came in um, emails uh, sent sort of surreptitiously is that uh, most people don't want to admit that their jobs are bullshit, or if they do, they 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 focus on something else, which is the sense of self worth they get from working, a sense of self worth that is entirely separate from and abstracted from what the purpose of one's working is. That to to be a good worker is just to simply work hard at whatever it is you're doing, to feel yourself exhausted, to spend lots of time. And these have become, as as 
as Graeber points out, and as one increasingly sees in contemporary society, these have become watchwords, right? It is very important nowadays to stress how busy you are. Um, that almost has symbolic value above and beyond what you're busy doing. Just to be busy is to be worthwhile. To be um, at the office for long periods of time is to be worthwhile. All these things um, become sources of value. So to some extent, we are uh, in unable to address the issue of bullshit jobs. So my um, second question then is about something that Graeber um, could not have anticipated. I already sort of mentioned this a little bit. Um, the second question is, um, how has the term and the awareness of essential workers changed our way of understanding the connection between the social value of a job and its economic value? That maybe, I guess what I'm trying to put out here is since this book came out before COVID-19 and the pandemic, and maybe what we're beginning to see now is perhaps an awareness that is challenging the 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 very backwards way that that of thinking that Graeber is accusing our societies of of being in this weird situation where um, the jobs that we think are important, jobs like caring for people, uh, children and the elderly jobs like teaching people, especially young children, uh, jobs that keep society functioning in terms of keeping vehicles moving, keeping food on plates and in shelves, that these jobs are in some sense undervalued. And we value jobs that uh, don't really have uh, an apparent social value. And maybe the phrase essential worker is beginning to challenge that um, sort of bizarro world, upside down logic, where the jobs that are most valued are the jobs that don't really contribute value, and that everyone is forced, as as Gary points out, people are forced in this decision. Which I've I hear multiple people in this class have already mentioned some version of this, where you basically have a choice: do you want to do something worthwhile, um, work as a teacher, work for a nonprofit, etc., in which case you are going to pretty much doom yourself to a life of poverty, unless you have a trust fund backing you up, or do you want to do something that is lucrative, in which case you may have to kind of hold your nose and put aside questions of the overall social value of what you're doing. So, um, but two questions again. Um, question one, how does the subjective element of the definition of bullshit jobs add to and expand uh, what we consider alien, alienation, adding a different sense of alienation to, than the one that Marx talked about? And then secondly, how does the term essential worker and the sort of crisis around essential worker uh, cast light on the strange logic that Graeber points to about the disconnect between the social value of a job, its impact on society overall, and the economic value of a job. Okay, thanks.